like, uh, kind of like bears, like out of hibernation, I feel like is what I would kind of think about with you guys right now, you know? So, out, like it's 40, it's nice, getting sunburned. Yeah, just knock me off, it's fine. So, I like, like marker board people, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Hey, why don't we pray together and uh, then we'll dismiss our kids. Lord, thank you so much for tonight, for the opportunity just to gather together as uh, a people in your name. And uh, we, we pray that as we, we think about and, and dwell on your word for the next few minutes, that uh, you would make the resounding cry of our spirit to be a people who see you as our living hope, that we would trust in you, believe in you, and see you as a source of life alone. Help us with that. We pray that your spirit moves in a powerful way this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head to children's worship. The rest of us, if you got a Bible, we're going to John chapter 5. Give you a minute to turn there. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a, a warning, I guess. Um, the, last, the last several weeks as we've worked through the Gospel of John, we've said that the, the primary nature of uh, the text was really narrative-based. And so for uh, the last several sermons, uh, whether it's Dave or myself, we've just kind of been walking through and just telling the story and making some observations, looking at what uh, the Bible says and, and building some context around it so that we might see it and know it well. Because we said when John writes, he, he doesn't do so uh, with a really sophisticated purpose. His, his purpose is very straightforward, and he identifies it for us. He says he's writing these things so that you would know who Jesus is and that in believing in him, you would have life. And so, uh, in fact, that's, that's how he concludes in John chapter 20 as he's winding down his gospel. It's almost the exact thing he says. He says they could have, he could have written a whole bunch of things. There are many things that weren't written that happened uh, while he was with Jesus. But these things he wrote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so uh, we just kind of walked through these, these different narrative accounts and said, look at how this plays out and how this is Jesus showing his authority or his, his ability to give out life. Now, uh, tonight, we're going to go in a little bit different direction from that sort of narrative, read, and explain situation. In fact, tonight's going to be much more teachy. Uh, and, and so if you're like an organized academic mind or you're really kind of mathematical in your nature, uh, it's going to be a good night for you. If you're not, uh, I'm going to go short. So, you know, you got something for both of you. Uh, here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're somebody who can take notes, uh, this would be a great sermon to kind of take some notes through because uh, Jesus is going to come in to John chapter 5 with the intention of answering a question that I think we have grown uh, more and more distant from understanding well as a culture, uh, which is essentially this. What does life mean? You, you see, 
John is speaking, writing to a bunch of people who are presumably alive, living, breathing, walking human beings, and saying that believing in Jesus would give you life, as if it's something that you don't yet possess. Uh, In fact, where we pick up from, let me give you kind of a uh, connection to where we were last week. We pick up from Jesus doing some things and demonstrating his authority in such a way that the Religious leaders of the day are are really opposed to who he is. Uh, In particular, what Dave showed us last week was that as Jesus begins to heal people and demonstrate his authority, that the resistance comes against Jesus as one who has authority. And first and foremost, the resistance is in the form of Jesus' violation of the Sabbath day. Uh, He heals a man who has been unable to walk for some 38 years, and the man picks up his pallet and begins to carry it, and the the instant reaction of those religious people is that this man should not be carrying his pallet on the Sabbath day. And so they say, who told you you could do this? He says, well, the the guy that fixed my legs said I could walk, and that seems like a reasonable person to obey. And so out of this, they say, well, who is that? He said, I don't even know who it is. A little bit later, they find him in the temple. The man says, oh, that's the guy, Jesus says, hey, don't sin anymore so nothing worse can happen to you. And the man goes back to these religious leaders and goes, hey, it was him. That's the one. And so they begin angry with him that he has violated the Sabbath. However, what he then says to them in John 5, 17 is, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And so his justification for violating the Sabbath is not to argue with them whether or not it is okay for him to heal someone on the Sabbath day. However, instead, he argues that he can do this because as God the Father has authority to do as he pleases, so does Jesus the Son have said authority. And so there's a really fascinating verse that follows this. In verse 18, it says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so uh, what starts off as Jesus in the really endearing sense, even our culture now would see it as an endearing sense of the word, uh, as the one who comes along, sees someone, a person of pity and a person in need who cannot walk and he heals him. And there's just kind of like a a universal, genuine acceptance of that. Like, yeah, that's great. I want a Jesus who's going to come and fix all of the broken and heal all of the people who are lame and, and make things better. Uh, quickly shifts into one who begins to demonstrate his authority over all things in a way that starts to become no longer Jesus the healer, now Jesus the turnoff, Jesus the one who has authority. And Jesus, um, never in the scriptures, if you you just read them faithfully, is never like a seeker-sensitive, kind of water-it-down kind of guy. Instead, he doubles down on this, and what we concluded with last week was Jesus answering them. You pick up in verse 19, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. He says, listen, I and the Father are in 
perfect unity. The believer, uh, the theological word we use for it is tri-unity or the trinity that, that God the Father and God the Son as well as God the Spirit will bring that in later. But uh, in that are together in harmony. He says, listen, not only am I equal with the Father, but I'll never be outside of the Father's will. I'm demonstrating the Father's will for just as the Father, look at verse 21, raises the dead and gives them life. Even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. And so uh, it's, it's this context, or in, in this way, that, that I want to just kind of work through this question with you today. What does Jesus mean when he says, those who hear the Son, those who believe in the Son, will pass from death to life? What does is, what is life mean according to the Scripture? Now, Primarily, uh, when the Bible speaks of life, it speaks about it in two different senses. It speaks of life in a spiritual sense, and it speaks of life in a physical sense. And Jesus, in one of the most succinct pieces of all of the scripture dealing with this, uh, coming up in just a second here, is going to deal with both of these things together in separate yet connected format. So uh, here's, here's why I say that's important. Uh, if we are to segregate these things into entirely separate, we do ourselves a lot of injustice. If we're to s- combine these things into one, we do like injustice. In fact, uh, historically, throughout all of the history of the world, uh, these two errors have been really common. People separate out life into life as my spirit or life as my inner being and life as my physical being as two different things, or they just equate them as one and the same with no distinction whatsoever. So, so let me kind of walk you through some of the errors of both so that we know that uh, the connection between physical life, spiritual life, as Jesus is going to lay it out, is not completely apart, but it's also not completely together, that there's two aspects of this. So a um, while, while back, I flew on a plane uh, from Madison to Chicago uh, to head to Michigan. And so I, I think I was flying to Michigan to meet Whitney and drive her back after she was visiting some, uh, visiting her parents and, and friends for a few days. This was uh, before we were like, you know, when you could still fly on planes and they would set you next to another human being on a plane. Uh, I have since, I flew in the last year, it was amazing. I was like stretched out, you know, feet all over the place. You get like a whole row for yourself and the price is like half as much. I'm not saying, I just kind of recommend it. Uh, it seemed like a best place to get a nap in 2020 anyways. Uh, and so this, this is back like 2018, 2019, I, I get on a plane. Uh, and so prior to that, uh, prior to COVID, one of the, the best places for me to be, generally speaking, was on an airplane um, because... I like to talk, and if you sit next to me, you're trapped, right? Like, and especially I, if I get to pick, I'm picking the aisle seat because not only are you trapped, but 
for you to think, like, maybe I could just go hide out in the bathroom for the next 40 minutes. You still have to go across me, which is a pretty big decision. And if you're going to make that much of a decision to avoid me, kudos. You get out of it, and I'll wait till the next flight and catch the next sucker. And so uh, I happen to be in the aisle seat next to a girl who I find out is... 20 years old. Uh, honestly, I was, I was a little tired. Um, I could tell she was like reading a book, and so I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just jump into conversation with her. I'll just, I'll read something. I'll relax a little bit. And uh, no sooner do we take off that she looks at me and goes, so what are you reading? It's like, oh, game time, you know. I was excited. Took the headphones off, ready to talk. And so we begin to talk. I happened to be reading a commentary on, uh, I, think, I think the book of Philippians or the book of Colossians, something we were preaching through at the time. Uh, I kind of explained to her what it is I do and what I was reading and, and why that's important to me. And she said, oh, man, I am very spiritual. I'm just not religious. I said, what does that mean? She said, well, I just... Here's, here's what I think, that deep down, I'm a good person, and, and so I just want to kind of be in tune with that, that force or that, that good person karma and do good things because ultimately that's going to come back to me. I said, really? So that's, that's really fascinating. What makes you a good person? She said, well, I just, I try to be nice to people, and I try to do the right things, and I try to uh, just, just care for others and see them as really important. You know, you know what I mean? I said, I don't mean to be a jerk, but not really. Fr- frankly, I don't, uh, because I don't, I don't see myself as a good person. And she said, aren't you like a, a spiritual leader? <laughs> well, you can call me that, but, but it doesn't mean I'm a good person. In fact, even as I do those things that you describe, those kind of good things, uh, oftentimes there's this sort of bitter and selfish and deep down reality that even in those things, I'm just doing them for my self-gratification and for my self-motivation and that maybe I would be somebody in myself that was worthy of some adoration, that, that ultimately even in the good deeds that I do, I'm ultimately just trying to fulfill some selfishness need not actually caring about anybody else in fact the bible kind of talks about that says that it's our righteous deeds that are like filthy rags before the lord and it's then that we would have to oblige ourselves to look at a standard of what makes somebody good and recognize whether or not we're good not based on whether or not we're spiritual but whether or not we do what is a good thing. And so uh, we, we began to kind of unfold what that standard is. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, God really lays out that standard for us in the Old Testament. It's called the law or the Ten Commandments as we know it, uh, which he gives us a baseline of what it means to be good or righteous. And as we're walking through them, she goes, yeah, I don't really follow that one. I don't really follow that one. I don't really follow that one. And yet, at the end of all of this, uh, she continued to rest in the fact that I'm spiritual. I'm just, I'm just not that religious. And, and ultimately, if my intentions are good, my spirit is good, what is physical in me or what is real in my life is almost negligible. And I can kind of determine what that is because we segregate out what physical life and spiritual life is. Now, here's, here's the really fascinating thing. That's always been the case throughout history. In fact, it's one of the very first heresies that John the Apostle is dealing with because there's this group that invades the church shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus who says Jesus was never even a person in the first place. He was just a spirit sent by God and that if we want to be right with God, we just have to have spirit. 
spirits that are like Jesus. And so we attach our spirit to Jesus, and it doesn't really matter what we do in our physical body. And so it led to all kinds of forms of idolatry and all, all types of forms of lust and all types of forms of gluttony and all types of forms of sinful behavior. And you can just segregate those out because you go, well, that's, in the, that's in the physical realm. And in the spiritual realm, ultimately, we want to be godly there first and foremost. And so there's this danger in, in distancing these two. Now, in the same respect, there's a danger in combining the two and making them completely the same, namely one of two things. Either it becomes the form of or the position of uh, secular humanism, a type of atheism that just says, listen, everything that you and I are is a result of chemistry and electricity. It's just simply neurons firing in different ways in our body, and someday we're just going to die, and that'll be it, and that'll be over, and nothing else exists within you, which really operates well until you consider how evil we might see things and recognize that this seems wrong. And, and yet, if we are simply physical and spiritual together and nothing separated about them, there is nothing that's spiritually wrong because you're just a physical being. And so uh, what Jesus does is he begins to divide this in a different way. He begins to divide the two, recognizing that life exists in both the spiritual realm and the physical realm, and for you and I, it overlaps constantly. Let's, let's look at a few verses and show you how this comes, all right? So uh, Jesus, first and foremost, is going to begin with the idea of what it means to be spiritually alive. He starts in verse 24 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. This is spiritual life he is talking about. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, that's Jesus, and those who hear will live. So here's the first thing that we know about spiritual life according to the scriptures. Spiritual life comes through Jesus alone. Over and over and over again, John is going to make this point in the gospel. In fact, I'd argue that it's the most crucial and consequential point that John's going to make again and again and again in the gospel is that without Jesus, you and I are simply dead people walking. Paul's going to say it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, that outside of Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that though we lived, there was no spiritual life in us, and it did not matter how moral or how interested in doing the right thing we felt we were, that only those who hear his word and believe him who sent me has eternal life, has spiritual life life, that it's not based on what you do, it's not based on how hard you try, and it's not based on how good you live, it's based on whether or not you have placed your faith in Jesus, whether or not he has made you alive. Remember, we looked at this just a couple weeks ago uh, in John chapter 3, because it just so happens there's a really religious guy named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and goes, hey, I know you're a teacher sent by God. Uh, nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God was with them, not you are God, but God was with them. And so uh, the inference in this is, hey, what do I got to do? What, what, is I, 
What is it that I need to have the life, the vibrancy that you show and demonstrate in this world? And Jesus' response is, you have to be born again. Not, not by your own power, not by your own ability. You have to be born of the Spirit. He's going to go on later to talk to Nicodemus in this way and say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever does what? Believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That the life would come through belief in him, not by our ability to work only in Christ alone. Now, second thing that you're going to see, and John, the, the Apostle John does this frequently throughout uh, the book of John. In fact, this is, nerd out for just a second, this is kind of a fun fact. If you're reading your Bible, in the Gospel of John especially, and you see verb that is put in the past tense and it's got an asterisk next to it that's because when John writes it he's actually writing it in present tense it's it's because he's not careless about that John's telling the narrative and as he's telling the narrative he's re-entering the narrative with such vibrancy and such life that he's he's writing in a way that's grammatically what we would consider incorrect but it's theologically recognizing that in Jesus this is real. This is happening, and he can remember it, and he can see it, and he can feel it. And so frequently, John's going to use verb tenses to his advantage in that he wants to persuade you and I to recognize the spiritual life given in Jesus. Look at how he does it in chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's present tense. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. That's past tense. And then in verse 25, he says, The dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's future tense. That spiritual life coming through Jesus is both past, present, and future tense. Here's why that matters. I think there's a, there's a bad degree of theology in the American Christian church that reduces what it means to be a follower of Jesus down to you believe intellectually a thought about an identity of a person so that someday you will die and receive a mansion in glory that is heaven eternally. Amen? That's, that seemed kind of accurate to something that you've been taught growing up in a Sunday school class. Fair enough, reasonable, close. Uh, here's, here's the thing. If you know Jesus Christ, your eternal spiritual life has already began. Now, now, do you look forward to glory one day in heaven eternally with Christ? Absolutely we do. However, what the Bible says is those who have been saved by the grace of God have already experienced the forgiveness of sins, have already experienced the transformation from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. That you and I, in the image of Christ, have been made as new creations. That the old has passed away and new things have come. That you and I are meant in Christ to now walk in a newness of life spiritually that has already started. Now certainly it will be transformed at one point in time. And yet uh, we don't hope 
only in the fact that someday we're going to die, but rather that we experience the peace of God and the joy it is to know life and know Jesus here and now, that it is past tense, present tense, and future tense all at work together. John's not making an accident when he puts these things together. Now, now look at there's one, there's one more thing that I think is really exciting in this. Watch the next verse. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also life in himself. Here's the third thing. Spiritual life. It's from God. That it is found in Jesus alone, that it exists from Jesus alone, that there's no other way and there's no other source. In fact, uh, Paul's going to write it this way when he's describing how Jesus is working in the world to this day. It says everything was made through him and by him and for him and that in him all things hold together. That he is one who is holding all things together in Colossians 1. In Hebrews 1, he's going to say that he is sustaining the universe by the power of his word. That Jesus is the author and perfecter of life. That we find spiritual life in no other source, no other place, no other name, nothing but Jesus. It's good news, right? Now here's, here's the thing though. What about those who don't know him? What, what about uh, what happens to those who are physically alive and yet not spiritually and, and never will be? Well, he continues on in this as well. Uh, and he goes on in verse 27 and it says, He gave him, that means the Father gave Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus is going to speak about the resurrection here in a very physical and real sense. And I think one of the things that is more confusing than, than many other things in uh, modern day Christianity is what happens to those who are spiritually alive when they physically die and what happens to those who are spiritually dead when they physically die. In fact, uh, maybe more than you have ever seen in the history of American culture, there's kind of a growing and raging debate about what that looks like uh, and, and a good amount of literature that would deny the very idea that there's anything out of spiritual life in heaven. Uh, in fact, you can look at uh, many different polls across the United States, and the percentage of Americans who believe in eternal bliss in heaven far outweighs the percentage of Americans who believe in eternal torment in hell. So in other words, we're okay with the idea that Jesus would give spiritual life and that that life could be eternal. However, we want to distance ourselves from the idea that there's any alternative to that because Jesus uh, is not going to deal with that. He's going to say, I do two things. I give life and I give judgment. And so what does that look like? In fact, uh, he's going to move out of the spiritual sense alone and say there's a very physical sense about this and there's some things we should observe about this. One, the hour is coming. 
So when Jesus speaks about the resurrection from the dead, he speaks in a very future tense. You can see the difference between verse 25 when he says, an hour is coming and now is that Jesus arrives on the earth as the giver of spiritual life currently, and that's why you and I might have spiritual life currently, but that there is an hour coming when he will return. Now, here's the thing. He returns to execute judgment. I never get more nervous up here than when I'm trying to spell in front of all of you. Cool. I, second grade, I remember we had like school spelling bee, author, A-U-T-H-E-R, author. I got out, I was so, I like went home, cried, still remember that. I won't ever spell author wrong again, uh, but I knew then and there that that wasn't gonna be my subject, and so I uh, just always feel a little cautious about that. Anyways, uh, Jesus is going to return and execute judgment. Now, the grace of God is that Jesus doesn't come to execute his judgment the first time. He comes to give by his grace, by his love for you and I, spiritual life to whom he wills, and by doing so in his grace that you and I might believe in him and have life spiritually so that when he comes to execute his judgment, he does so to two effects. First of all, he executes this judgment to all. That means that it doesn't only include those who know him. It doesn't mean that those who deny the existence of Christ or have never heard the gospel simply cease to exist. It doesn't believe in annihilationism. Jesus is very clear that all who are in the tombs will be called out. That, that means at some point when Jesus returns, this is the central piece of Christian theology. If you and I don't die first, which is, is likely to happen, more likely for some of you, uh, state and facts, okay? That, that if we don't, he will return Either way, upon his return, the Bible promises that Jesus comes to not be Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Lamb, but comes as Jesus the righteous judge who would execute judgment upon mankind and all of mankind. And here is the distinguishing factor in his judgment. A judgment to life, life physically resurrected eternally for those who do good deeds and a judgment that's I always want an extra E in that word E in that one those who do evil deeds he says it will be one or the other now if you are well familiar with Christian faith there should be a little bit of a recoil at a statement like that. In fact, this week reading it, I thought, I thought, wait a second. Is our is our right standing before God on the basis of whether or not we've done good deeds or evil deeds? Is that in line with the Christian message at all? Help me out. No. <laughs> the answer is no. 
Okay, so, so what's he saying here? What's he getting at? In fact, it seems almost contradictory to the idea that he would have said, you and I have life in hearing and believing in his name, not in whether or not we do good deeds or evil deeds. In fact, consistently throughout the gospel message, his indictment on those who are most moralistic and trying so hard to be good was that you will never do well enough to escape the judgment of God that you and I have sinned and offended a holy God and we stand guilty and in need of judgment in his righteousness. And the only way out, the only way that that judgment in righteousness does not find itself met with the wrath of God eternally, but rather with the grace of God is in the name of Jesus. That we don't cast ourselves on our body of work, but rather we appeal in belief to the fact that Jesus Christ came and died to atone for, to pay for, to cover our sin. And so, in that truth, he says, don't marvel at this. An hour's coming in which all who are in tombs will hear my voice and will come forth. And those who do good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who commit the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Well, here's, here's what I think he's going to say about that. John is going to say about that a little bit later in his gospel. Jesus, speaking in John 15, says this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Now listen to this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and gather, as, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Can I tell you what I think Jesus means in John 5 when he says there's a, there's a resurrection for all coming, and a time when all will stand judgment before God, and those who do good deeds to life, and those who do evil deeds to endless judgment, was not on the basis of whether or not you and I could work hard enough to do good deeds, but rather a recognition that you and I can do no good deeds outside of the one who gives life spiritually outside of him, the vine, you and I can do nothing good on our own. And that in Christ, we prove our belief when we bear much fruit. That in our good deeds, we don't 
earn our salvation, but those of you who know Christ, who have been made alive in Christ, are alive and freed from the slavery of sin to walk in a new life that bears fruit in good deeds so that at the time of judgment you find a resurrection to life and life eternal, not judgment and judgment eternal. And so again, it just comes back over and over and over again. Jesus it's all about Jesus. What do you do with Christ? The one who gives life spiritually, the one who gives life physically, the one who holds all things together in his hand. What are you going to do with him? Now, let me finish with this. Um, I, think we, I think we, even in our gospel account, and, and as we think about what Jesus is saying here, it's a very, very basic recognition of of the core or the central or the first piece of the gospel message that you would be made alive by the work of God in Jesus Christ, uh, we, we kind of end this in uh, selfish desire so that, so that we can have a good time forever in heaven. And yet, it's not the purpose that Jesus has for telling them this. Come back with me to verse 23 as he introduces all of this. What's the reason that you and I might have life in the name of Christ, he says it's this way. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You and I ought to see the purpose of life, not only made alive in Christ and rejoicing in that, but for this purpose that we would give honor to the one who gives life, that we would show honor to the Son. Pray with me. Father, let us exist to honor and glorify your name. Make, make us a people who can recognize what it means to be alive spiritually, for, for those of us who have spiritual life, that we would, we would treasure it and that it would be a time for us to honor and glorify your name, that we'll sing in just a minute songs of praise to the honor and glory of your name. And, and for those in here tonight who are dead people walking, who have, have not yet passed from death to life, who have never placed their appeal on you, I pray that you would Make them alive through faith. That they, they would lay down this, this pressure, this burden, this need of feeling like I've got to do enough and I've got to be good enough and I've got to, I've got to get this right in my life and I've got to clean up my act here. And they would simply hear your voice and believe. And in doing so, we know that you give life. That they pass from death to life through faith in you. We pray that your spirit would be at work in that way this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and we'll sing and praise the Lord with one more song honoring his name together.